We're in the middle of a series entitled Unstoppable, looking at important biblical principles in scripture that show us the importance of what we're called to do as Christians, and also remembering that the increase, the bounty, the fruit of our labors come from God and God alone. Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. God's word is crystal clear. He gets the glory. He brings about the growth. But God's word is equally clear that there is a responsibility on all our parts to do what we need to do. In fact, just a casual reading through the scriptures shows us that this won't be an easy task. The Bible is replete with reminders to us that the Christian life will require a great expenditure of effort on our parts. And you could, use, you could see that as you look at certain scriptures, some of which I've put in your outline, that show just the words that, God, that he uses to, to refer to the Christian life. Hebrews 12.1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's not let us walk through the stroll of life. Like He uses those words intentionally. Let's run the race that is set before us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run that you may obtain it. Heck, if you're going to be in a race, try to win the thing. Run in a way that you would obtain the prize. Paul later in his second letter to Timothy says, I have what? Fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Fighting, racing, running, winning. God wants us to run, to fight, and to do so in a way as to win. And hopefully that's what you've seen as we've spent time in God's word over these past several weeks. Ordinary people, ordinary believers like you and me, just like you and me, who believed in an extraordinary God with extraordinary plans, and the extraordinary power of the gospel to save souls and transform hearts and minds for Christ. God calls us, the saved, the redeemed, to be a force that is, quite frankly, unstoppable in this world for the cause of Christ. Our text today is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. And what I'm going to do, though, is I'm actually going to read the entire chapter to give us a little bit of a bigger picture. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. So if you are physically able, would you join me in standing in honor of the reading of God's holy word as I read aloud 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed 
I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will only boast with regard to the area of influence assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we, sorry, for we, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today excited to be able to worship you together once again, excited that this is the day that you have made for each and every one of us to be here. Lord, we rejoice in it, we are glad in it, but we come before you boldly asking for your help as we open up your word, wanting to hear from you, Christ. So would you do that, Lord? Would you speak through me? Would you speak to me? Would you pierce our hearts, pierce our ears, Lord, so that we might be changed by your holy word? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our text today, as you've noticed, is 10 chapters into the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, instead of just jumping into the text that we just read today, I want to give you a bit of background information so you know what Paul is dealing with in what we're reading today. That was helpful to me as I studied this week, so I hope it's helpful to you as well. Now, none of this is in your outline, so either sit back and buckle up or take notes and buckle up. But either way, buckle up because I'm going to try to fly us up to 2 Corinthians 10 from where we are right now. So this will be kind of fast. In Acts chapter 18, we know that Paul founded the church at Corinth and was there for a little more than a year, probably about 20 months, uh, a little more than a year and a half, actually, before he hit the road to serve in Antioch, Ephesus, and other places. And after he had left, he received word that problems had arisen within the church that he had found, to which he wrote a non-canonical letter to address these issues. Now, a non-canonical letter means it wasn't canonized, it wasn't part of the scriptures, but he wrote it nonetheless. And we know of it because Paul refers to it back in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9 when he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's referring to a letter that he had written to them previously. And that letter didn't really help much and he received reports of even more problems. So Paul wrote a second letter to them that we know as 1 Corinthians. So the one in 1 Corinthians, doesn't refer to it being Paul's first letter to them ever, but the first letter to the Corinthians that we have in our Bibles. Hopefully you're now thoroughly confused. But basically, it's it's not, that's just kind of FYI. There are actually four letters that we know of, at least, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And the letters that we have in our Bibles, I believe, are actually letters two and four, but it's one and three in our Bibles. Because it's, excuse me, it's one and two in our Bibles. It's the first, now I'm confused. Moving on. Anyway, 
So out of the four letters that we know of that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, we have two that have been canonized, two of them have been included within our Bibles. Not long after that, another problem arose, perhaps an even greater one, and that was that false teachers had invaded the church and tried to dissuade people from following Paul's teaching. They called him to question his ministry style. They planted seeds of doubt among the people as to whether or not he was even an apostle and sought to mar his character in such a way so that people wouldn't follow him. And Paul's response to this was what we refer to as the severe letter, which apparently brought about the repentance of most of the Corinthian church. And this is also a non-canonical letter that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4. So in 2 Corinthians, he refers to yet another letter that he wrote. He said, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So there he is in 2 Corinthians, referring back to another letter that he had written to them, saying, this was the purpose that I wrote that letter to you. Still, in the wisdom of God, Paul knew not that not all that glitters is gold. And while he was happy to see the flames of rebellion put out he still saw and smelled smoke and knew that where there's smoke, there's fire. Smoke in the form of people who had been silenced but not convinced. Silenced but not convicted of their errors. So they were still there, but they were just lying low. So he launches what one commentator refers to as a search and destroy mission to root out the remaining pockets of resistance within the church at Corinth. And that's where we find ourselves today. By the end of Paul's life, he had run. He had run hard. He had finished. He had won. He had fought the good fight. And what I want you to see today is Paul in the midst of a fight. Paul in the midst of a battle. And what I want you to see today is how Paul fought. How Paul fought. See, we're not looking primarily today at the fact that he thought. The, the primary purpose of this message is not to convince you and I to fight. We're not looking at why he fought. This isn't primarily a sermon to convince you that there's a fight worth fighting, although there most definitely is. From our time today, I want you to leave this place not simply convinced that you need to fight. But if you remember one line from our time today, I hope it's this. It's, it's in your outline. It's letter B. How you fight matters to God. How you fight matters to God. Highlight it, circle it, know it, repeat it. That's the point of our time today. How Paul fights for truth. What his goals were. How he encouraged the church at Corinth to accomplish them, trusting that he, <clears throat> that the church at Fort Thomas can accomplish them as well if we run and fight and win God's way. How you fight matters to God. I think it's not really hard to get Christians, particularly within our church context, to be willing to fight for truth. I know many of you, if not all of you, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of you, if not all of you, enjoy sometimes a good fight, depending on what that, I mean, I'm looking at Dave Warren, so like, like de de depending on what that, what context that might come in, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of fun to spar, it's kind of fun to go back and forth, and let's really fight for truth, and let's stand up for what's right. I'm not here to convince you why, I'm not even here to convince you what, I'm here to show you today how you fight matters to God. So with the time that we have left today, that's what I want to look at. I want to look at how Paul fought. 
First, you need to fight with compassion and courage. Compassion and courage together. And friends, that's not an easy marriage. Compassion and courage. At first glance, it might seem like they work against each other. If you think of someone who is compassionate, someone who's loving, who's kind, who's merciful, who's caring, I'm sure there's somebody that comes to your mind right now. Maybe it's you. Somebody who's just very compassionate. When you hear that word, you think of this person. You may not also think that they're simultaneously courageous. Or maybe you say, well, actually, now that I think about it, they are. But if I were to ask you to think of a courageous person, would that same person be the first person to come to your mind? The answer is probably no. Think of someone who is, when I think of someone who is courageous, I think of someone who's brave, who's strong, who's mighty, who's a fighter, who's a winner, who's a warrior, a bold person. Oftentimes, this person seems like they take no prisoners. And is the courageous person also compassionate? But here's the truth, friends. Jesus is both. Jesus is both courageous and compassionate. Paul, who imitates Christ, is both courageous and compassionate. And you and I need to be unstoppably compassionate and unstoppably courageous. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Okay, so he doesn't come in just come straight out swinging. He mentions who he is. He's not ashamed of his apostolic authority. Hey, it's me. It's Paul. I'm an apostle. It's me. He starts out saying, I, Paul, myself. This is not coming from anyone. Take this seriously. But understand, I'm, thinking to you, I'm speaking to you based on the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The Greek word there for meekness is, is, is power under control. So it's not that he's, meek is not weak, okay? Meek is not weak. It's not Paul saying, oh, I'm so, I'm just, I've just been so changed by God and now I'm all of a sudden, I've just, I used to be someone who persecuted Christians and I'm so full of strength and then Jesus saved me and now I just, I don't have any strength anymore. He's not, he's not a wallflower. Meek is not weak. Meek is power under control. That's the word that's used there when he says, I, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of of Christ. Gentleness is refusing to insist on the full measure of one's legal rights. So what Paul's basically doing is he's not playing every card he can play, right? He is not playing every card he can play. We see that Jesus did this. Jesus is God. Jesus did not constantly walk around playing the God card, constantly calling lightning down from heaven, saying, oh, I'm God. I just obliterated these people. He didn't always do that. He had power, what? Under control. He had gentleness. He didn't always tap into every aspect of the fact that he was very God. He didn't wipe out people because he was God and call judgment down every single time. Paul is using the same attitude here. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And if you're this way, if you're compassionate towards those who are against you, the world is going to spin it in such a way that is negative. You need to know that. Uh, that's, that's what happened to Paul. Instead of seeing his compassion as good, they saw it as weak, as cowardly. And so we should prepare to be misunderstood as such. I I think there are times when Christians want to be simultaneously like Jesus and also thought of as pretty cool. That's not going to happen. 
Uh, if it happens a little, you say, well, it happens in my Christian circles. Yeah, say that again slowly. If that happens within Christian circles, that's fine. We admire each other. We love each other. That's great. But in the world, as you choose to be meek and gentle, as you choose to be compassionate, people are just going to call you a wimp. You're going you're gonna to try to be compassionate towards your enemies, which is what the Lord calls us to do. The world's not going to say, that's so admirable. Mm. And that's not what the world did for Paul. We read about being fools for Christ in the Bible, and you think that's when people like roll their eyes at you because you insist on going to church or something fairly mundane. That's part of it, but rest assured, it goes, it goes deeper than that. There's going to be times when people are just going to look at you and say or think you are an idiot because of what you have chosen to do or not do for the sake of Jesus Christ. Not just different, not, oh, that's cool, not, oh, they think really differently. Some people will just think you are an utter moron because you're doing something that flies in the face of conventional wisdom. God tells us that's going to happen, and so we shouldn't be surprised when it does. It actually reaffirms our faith in his word. So when we're called fools for Christ's sake, you're an example of fulfilled prophecy. This is something that God had, God had told us would happen because we live in a world that does not fly along the same lines, does not go parallel or with the word of God. And there's a bit of sarcasm in verse 1. I want you to see that. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Paul was being accused of being all big and bad from a distance. Oh, look at him. He writes his letters in all this bold language. But when he's with you, he's not that way. He's two-faced. That's what these false teachers are saying. How come when he's with you, he's your best friend? He's all gentle. He's all loving and kind. Then he travels somewhere and writes a letter and sends it with some messenger. And all of a sudden, he's big and bad. He's two-faced. I, who am humble, went. So he's saying, oh, it's me, Paul. I, who am humble when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. He's being sarcastic because that's not who he was. But he knew that's what he was being accused of. I remember there being a time when there was somebody who really, really, really disagreed with me and my perspective on something in the Bible, and they wanted to sit and talk about it, kind of, except not really. Because when we got together to talk, they would just kind of nod, and they would be in agreement, or they would gently push back on something, and I would gently talk about something else from the Scriptures and how I understood such and such to work out and why I think this is the way we should live our lives to honor the Lord, and we would kind of leave, not really on the same page, but whatever, and then wouldn't you know it, it would be within 24 hours, there'd be this ginormous blog post of this person referring to this meeting that they just recently had with someone about this issue, and it's like, check you out. Really? We just had a meeting about this, we just talked about this, it happened a couple of different times. Well, as I think about this section of scripture, that's kind of what Paul is being accused of. Oh, so gentle right here, but Mr. Big Man with an internet connection. So, so gentle when we're across from each other, but Mr. Tough Guy when you don't have to face the people that you're being so tough with. And if you think about it, what could Paul do? There's really no way out of this hallway, right? Because if he decides to defend his, no matter which end he defends, he proves them to be right. No, I'm not really humble. I'm really bold. See, he's really bold. See, he's always bold. No, I'm not really bold. I'm really humble. See, he's, see so there's, there, he's kind of cornered when it comes to this accusation. And verse 2 says, I beg of you. Look at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 2. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. 
Paul's cornered. If he defends one way or the other, his meekness or his boldness, he'll prove a point of his enemies one way or the other. So you know what Paul does? He uses this portion of his letter to show that he strived to marry the two, compassion and courage, in a way that is honoring to Christ. He doesn't defend his character. He's not speaking so that he could bring honor to himself. He's just saying, this is what I've done. Bold and compassionate together. How do you do at marrying those two? How do I do at marrying those two? How do I strive to marry both compassion and courage? See, Paul imitates Christ. And although he was meek and gentle, he was also ready and willing to be bold for when it was necessary. How often am I, that's what I'm thinking about as I, as I prepare for this message. How often do I consciously think about how the Lord would have me respond to a situation? Or do I just go with my knee-jerk reaction in the moment? Am I hiding from opportunities to be bold? Because that's more my, my temperament. That's more how I'm wired. Am I jumping at opportunities to be bold, but hiding from an opportunity to show the gentleness and the meekness and the love of Christ in that moment? Which one do I tend to hide from? Don't ask yourself the question, which one do I gravitate towards? Because I feel like when I answer that question, I give myself a little bit of a buy. Well, it's just how I am. That's what I gravitate towards. Ask yourself this question, which one do you hide from? Do, do, do you see the difference? Asking yourself which way you hide from, it's like it, it paints that in a different light where you would realize, ooh, when I go towards the one that I gravitate towards, I'm actually perhaps hiding from the one that God would have me grow in. So when boldness is my M.O., I, I'm, I'm hiding from, I'm pushing aside, I'm ignoring the fact that God would also have me have strength or power under control. I need to be meek. I need to marry compassion with courage. And at the same time, you need to be capable to fight the right fight in the right way. Look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. I think what Paul is saying in this verse is, is twofold. First, he's denying the accusation that, that he refers to in the previous two verses. See in verse 2 when he says, some suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So then the next verse, he flat out denies that by simply saying, it's not true. We're not, we're not waging war according to the flesh. That's not how we roll. But he's also not going to spend his time there because that's not his primary battle. That's not the war he's been called to fight. Look again at verse 3. We are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, Paul says, I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. Even though we walk in the flesh, just, just like everyone in this world walks in the flesh, we're human beings, we live in this world, we face similar troubles of life that everyone faces. Even though we're in this world, we're not going to wage war according to the flesh. That's not our mission. He's not going to chase that rabbit. He's not just going to fall victim to the first piece of bait that comes his way, even if he has the right to. Do you know why? Because it's going to distract him from his primary mission. And his primary mission is Jesus Christ. The spreading of the gospel. The increase of God's kingdom. The spreading of the word of God as we'll see in a couple of verses. And he's not going to chase every rabbit that comes his way. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 he writes this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present 
darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying, listen, this is our enemy right here. It's evil. It's, it's not flesh and blood. It's not right here. It's, it's, it's not, and, and the rulers, don't be, don't be led astray by that. It's not a flesh and blood battle. It's not a right here battle. But it's spiritual, it's cosmic powers, it's spiritual rule and authority that we have dominion over because of fight, because of Christ. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Keep your eye on the real enemy and don't get distracted by every little sub-enemy that comes down the road. So instead of Paul taking it personally, instead of Paul getting totally distracted and writing 14 chapters of why he's really consistent with his character and why he really isn't really a wimp and why he's really not mean and how much he loves, he stays the course. He briefly talks about how he marries the two, but stays the course. Here's what I want you to realize from that verse that's in your outline, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. God provides all that we could ever want or need When we choose to fight, watch, his fight, his way. He provides all that we could ever want or need when we fight his fight, his way. Football cleats don't do very well on a basketball court. It just simply wasn't designed with that game in mind. Friends, the whole armor of God that the Lord has given us, that's elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 6. Right? The helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feed shod with the preparation and the readiness of the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's meant for a very specific fight. Just like football cleats are meant for a very specific game. And when we take one and try to mix it with the other, I mean, you can try that, but, but the results are going to be mixed. They weren't designed with that fight in mind. The whole armor of God is designed to fight God's fight God's way. We're not supposed to take what ticks us off the most, sprinkle it with a Bible verse, baptize it, and then claim that by buying an Android instead of an Apple, we're being salt and light. Like, please stop that. Because Jesus had that nowhere in his mind. And in my, I'm away from the notes, I'm ranting just, just a little, because that term from the Sermon on the Mount, that we're the salt, we're supposed to be the salt and the light, that term, friends, gets hijacked from, for everybody's favorite social issue. And then they try to get you its clickbait. Not every Christian, not every social issue that's conservative, not every social issue that everybody wants, to, wants you to get on their bandwagon with is really a gospel issue. But in an attempt to rally the evangelicals together, an attempt to rally Christians together, it's, you got to sign this, you got to do this, because we want to, and we got to stand with us and do this. It's like, okay, I'm with you. Be salt and light. Uh, Now you've made it a, now you're saying it's a biblical thing, that by me doing this, I'm being salt and light. If I don't do this, I'm not being salt and light. And I just, I just don't think that every time people use that term salt and light, it's what Jesus Christ had in mind. Does, Does that make sense? Not whether you agree with me or not, does it make sense? I just want to make sure I'm speaking, I speak the English. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, not everything that people say is salt and light is really salt and light. Not everything that people say is a gospel issue is really a, is really a gospel issue. It really might just be a cell phone. I remember uh, recently I was speaking with somebody who was very, very frustrated that there was a, there was a, a 
an issue, let's just say, that they were really worked up about and wanted other people to be worked up about with them and said as a gospel issue and salt and light and all my favorite verses and all that stuff and was frustrated that it wasn't working among Christians. It wasn't working among his Christian evangelical peers. It wasn't working among even, even leaders within, within his church. I think he brought football cleats to the basketball game. I don't think it's working because I don't think there was a connection there that he, he thought that this was a, a gospel issue, and I think many people just didn't see it as a gospel issue. He said they're being apathetic. I don't think they're being apathetic. I just don't think that they connected it. It's an important issue, but they didn't connect it to the scriptures, so they didn't think it was a God thing. It's just a, it's a thing. So some people got on board. Some people didn't. Does that make sense? It's it, not every issue is a gospel issue. Just because people get worked up about it and happen to love Jesus doesn't make it a gospel issue. There are some gospel issues, but not everything. And that's why, point number three, you need to fight with caution, knowing the limits of your commission and your weapons. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So here's what they're not for. They're not for the flesh. Here's what they are for. They destroy strongholds. When you try to cross the two, it may or may not work. They are for destroying strongholds. Skip down to verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. Do you see that? Paul is right there saying, we're gonna, we got some limits here that we're going to boast within. There's some limits here that we're going to challenge our influence and uh, use our influence for. And that's because we want to see people commended to God, commended by God. That's why we're here. But since our fight is not of this world, the Lord hasn't provided us with the weapons necessary to win a fight like the world does. You need to realize that. That's not something that the Lord has equipped you for. We run, we fight, and we win in a way that is different and for a cause that is different from the world in which we live. And the reason why I'm using this as a point is not, I, it really is what the Lord laid on my heart as I study this passage. I'm thinking, where might we be tempted to lose our focus in this day and age? Because I see how Paul stayed focused even though he was being accused. Paul stayed focused on his primary message. What, where might the battle lie for us? And my concern is this. You have a limited amount of time and resources, and so do I. And your life is only so long, and statistically speaking, some of us think we'll be alive longer than we will. That's just a fact. But that aside, regardless of whether we live another 90 seconds or another 90 years, one truth remains for all of us. Life is very short. Life is very short. The time that we've been given to spend on this earth is really short. What does the Bible describe it as? A vapor. That just vanishes. Our entire life is like a vapor that just vanishes. And each of us needs to pray the prayer that Moses prayed in Psalm 90 and verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And when we look at Christ's examples, Christ was all about one thing and one thing alone. Doing the will of his Father in heaven. John 4 and verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. One chapter later, John chapter 5, he says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, verse 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus numbered his days and accomplished his father's will for his life. Paul numbered his days and accomplished God's will for his life. And friends, we need to number our days and accomplish God's will 
for our lives. And we need to be unstoppable in so doing. Because life is short. And because hell is hot. And because people matter. And because Jesus saves. And the word of God and the people of God are truly, unequivocally, unstoppable. That would be a great part for an amen on your part. Thank you. Okay. You need to know the limits of your commission and your weapons. You need to know the tools with which you've been equipped and use them for God's glory because the gospel is of first importance. Where do you find yourself to be maybe tempted to be distracted from the main thing? Where do you find yourself tempted to be distracted from the main thing? Is it a cause? Is it an issue? Is it a life event? Is it a person, an enemy? Is it politics? Is it finances? I don't know what it is. What, what do you find yourself thinking about in a way that doesn't aim you towards Christ or reaching people for Christ but away from it? Paul didn't take the bait. Paul didn't take the bait. He wasn't chasing rabbits that the enemy threw his way so he could spend less time on the gospel and more time on blank. You fill in the blank. He didn't take the bait. And friends, I realize that the times they are changing. And I realize that we live in a very, very, very evil world. But I think one of the greatest tools of the enemy will not be death and destruction of God's people but will be the distraction of God's people while they're living. To get you to be excited about something that ultimately isn't gospel-centered, so you spend your time there instead of with Jesus or for Jesus. Does that, does that make sense? Because you can't multitask. That doesn't work. We do one thing at a time. We say we do. We really just do one thing at a time quickly for those of us who claim to be multitaskers. But we're not multitaskers. We do one stinking thing at a time. And the more that... The devil, the more that this wicked world, the more that our sinful natures can get us distracted from Christ and focused on some other cause, the less we're working on the things of God. I think one of the most subtle, it's subtle, one of the most subtle enemies of the gospel is the distraction of God's people from kingdom work. And it's even towards good things. See, it comes out looking, it's not, I'm not saying... You, re- you, know, you have no idea how many Christians are not preaching the gospel and abandoning the church and selling drugs. Like, I'm not saying they're going wholesale to the other side of something evil. I'm saying there are many, many, many Christians who do things that appear to be Christian-ish, but ultimately aren't making an impact for the kingdom. And I think that's a subtle enemy of ours that we don't even realize is there. And that we need to be on the lookout for. Paul didn't take the bait. He wasn't going to chase the rabbit. Squirrels. Paul didn't do that. And the next verse in our text shows you the mission he was on. He had a Christ-centered target. A Christ-centered goal. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 5 and 6. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your life, when your obedience is complete. His goal was to destroy arguments and opinions that were raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, our ministry in life is a battle primarily, look up here, for the mind. Do you understand that? Primarily for 
the mind. I'm in a battle for my mind and with my mind and for the minds of those I wish to reach. So Paul knows this and he says we need to destroy false arguments and every seemingly lofty opinion that dares to raise itself against the knowledge of God and look to bring our thoughts in line with God's thoughts. Look to bring our thoughts in line with God's word. It's obedience to him that we're seeking in our lives and in the lives of others. And Paul says, punish disobedience? Yeah, he's ready for that too. But meaning he'll deal with those who disobey the gospel. Look at me. In the church, he'll deal with those who disobey the gospel in the church at a later time. But his first focus was obedience to Christ. So Paul is saying, yeah, in verse, like if you see that in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6, I'm ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So he's saying, I'm looking out on this church of Corinth. I care about this church of Corinth. If there's disobedience within the church of Corinth, I'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. Right now, let's keep our eyes focused on the goal. Once your obedience is complete, we'll deal with that. Skip down to verse 15. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope, what's our hope? Is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. So the fight of our life, that's our goal. He's saying that's our hope. That's what we're doing. We want to see people want to Christ and we don't want it to stop here. So we want your minds changed. We want you to change other minds. We want God to use you to change other minds. And we want to see this thing just keep going. That's our goal. That's why he's not going to take the bait. That's why he's not going to be distracted. That's why he's going to stay the course. The fight for our lives and those we're trying to reach is the same. Transformed hearts, transformed minds that result in a life of obedience to Christ. I was just thinking earlier this week as I was thinking about this message, usually what you say to discount what somebody else has said, you say, that's ah, all in your mind, right? That's ah, all in your mind. No, no, this really is all in your mind. Like this really, we have to like flip that on its head. This really is all in your mind. We, this is a fight for the minds of those that we love and a fight for our own minds as we want to see our thoughts taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Christian ministry in large part involves a battle for the mind. We need to destroy false arguments so we and others can yield to Christ. We need to think about what is standing in between the lost person and Christ. Is there a way that I can take that thing down? I've got a helmet of salvation. I've got a belt of truth. I've got a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I have prayer. What in the world can I do to fight this stronghold? What can I do that can help this person see truth? What can I water? What can I plant? What might God cause an increase in? We need to destroy false arguments. And maybe you say, I don't really know how to do that. That sounds all well and good. I'm with you. I've got it. I see it in the text. I don't really know how to do that. How do I destroy false arguments? Well, in the time we have left, I'm going to give you some pointers on that, on how you can destroy false arguments. Okay, so first of all, This is going to sound like a broken record, what I'm about to say. But you don't have a shot of destroying false arguments out there if you can't destroy false arguments in here. And the only way that you destroy false arguments in here is by maintaining some sort of consistent intake of God's word. Okay, so if you don't have that going in your life and you go out and take an apologetics course, you'll learn a lot of, you'll learn a lot of answers. You'll learn a lot of ways that you can fight false teaching. And, and I'm not saying those things are wrong. Yes and amen. 
Your mind needs to be transformed by the word of God because what that apologetics course can't do for you is fight the spiritual battle that goes on in your mind, but the word of God can. Do you understand? So the apologetics course and apologetics books and reading about all those things, I love them. I think they're awesome. That's great. If you can win a debate, that's great. But you have to realize that there's something that takes place in your mind and it's just evil and sinful and doubtful and it comes late at night or early in the morning or at the times that you least expect it when you think, is this thing, is even, is this thing even real? Is this really the word of God? Maybe, am I really the idiot that the world says that I am? Like, maybe I'm not a fool for Christ. Maybe I'm just a fool. Like, and during those times, that's when the word of God is going to help you. Does that make sense? This, first and foremost, is going to help you more than any sermon, more than any book, more than any course. A, just a, a regular reading of God's holy word. If you want to destroy false arguments, you have to give them something to compare them to. It needs to be this. So having this on my mind, when I hear a false argument, when I hear, let's put it this way, when I hear an argument, when I hear a perspective, since this is the grid through which I try to view life, if it doesn't fit and it doesn't stick, I then know it as false. If I don't have this at work in my life, it's kind of a crapshoot. It can go either way, right? We just kind of roll the dice and, you know, big money, big money. Like we're hoping that it lands on the right but I don't know. I need to have some sort of a measuring stick. I need to have some sort of a foundation, and it has to be the Word of God. If you're interested, I preached a sermon last year on April 19th called, Do I Have a Diet of God's Word Feeding Me? And if that's something you'd want to listen to, it's available online. It talks about things to look for in your life to understand, do I have a healthy diet? Do I need to up it? Do I need to, I need to read more or not read? What to look for in your life to see if God's word is having an effect on you. Again, that's on the website uh, from April 19th of last year. Regular, consistent Bible reading is a must for the Christian because God changes our minds and our hearts through the knowledge of Christ. And you know what you'll find? And this seems so elementary, but it's so worth repeating. This doesn't, watch this, this doesn't change. The grass, what? Withers? The flower? fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In a world where there's constant change, in a world where we don't know what's going to happen next, just in our own lives we don't know what's going to happen next. We have a constant. We have a rock that's immovable and truly unstoppable. Read it, listen to it, get it in your life on a regular basis. It will quite literally change your life. That's not my promise to you but God's promise to you. Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But maybe you're wondering, how do I take my thoughts captive on a daily basis? That sounds real like, like I got to like capture or, or, or take my thoughts and lock them up and make sure that they obey Christ and like then let them go. Like, how do I do that? What does Paul mean here this? Well, here's the thing. You need to prayerfully carefully, it's going to sound really weird, think about your thoughts. You need to think about your thoughts and compare them to the word of God. So here's a general thing that I've done in my life and that I try to help counselees and other people that I've discipled and helped over the years to see. And I want you to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. What does it mean when I say think about your thoughts? What am I trying 
What, what, what am I trying to do as a follower of Christ when I say we need to think about our thoughts? Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Pick it up in verse 6. Uh, let's look at verse 4. Philippians 4 verse 4. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now look at this one really long verse. Finally, brothers, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about what? These things. So, what I've done often, literally, in my journal, number one, I would encourage you to memorize this verse. And then I would ask myself, are my thoughts, and I would read down this list, are they true? Most, most of the time it stops there. <laughs> nope, nope, this is just something I'm scared of. It's really not true. It's just something, lots of times things that you're nervous about, this comes in the context of anxiety. So, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, whatever is true, Finally, brothers, this is what you're supposed to make your mind. That's literally in the Greek where it says meditate on these things. It means make your mind these things. Are my thoughts true? Is what I'm thinking true? Is what I'm thinking just? Is it honorable? Am I thinking something that's pure? Is it lovely? Doing a word study on each of those words, just what do these words mean? What are the meanings of these words? This is what God wants me thinking about. He wants me to channel my thoughts on things that are of this nature, that fit these categories. I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? Well, this thought that's on my mind, this argument that's on my mind, this position, this worldly opinion, this lofty philosophical argument. We're going to look at philosophy next week, Lord willing. This lofty argument that is coming at us from outside, denouncing our faith, trying to tear it down. Let me think. Is it true? Is it noble? Is it just? Is it lovely? And the more no's that line up there, we say, you know what? This really has no, no place and no purpose in my mind. This doesn't sound like it's something that's biblically true or verifiable. It's a false argument. We tear it down. Does, does, does that make sense? It helps us to categorize things as we face them. Is this true? Is this right? Does God want me thinking about this? Is this something I should focus on? Because I'm supposed to make my mind these things. So that's just one way, one way that we would look at the thoughts that we have and think about our thoughts and, 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 and prayerfully consider them and say, is this is something that's on my mind a lot. Should I be doing this? And then helping other people to realize God's word is truth. God's word is honorable. God's word is noble. Jesus Christ is all of these things that is listed here, and we should want to make our mind like him. Finally, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 15 and 17 says, We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others, 
But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Without boasting of work already done and in other areas of influence, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Lord, that's our desire. We want to be commended by you. Not by ourselves, not by our world. We long to please you first and you alone. We want to hear well done from you. Uh, We don't want to be satisfied to hear it from others. We don't even want to be satisfied to hear it from ourselves as we look in the mirror. We want to hear it from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to compare our lives, our thoughts to the word of God And make obedience our goal because we long to obey and please you. And we want to reach others so that they might long to please you and obey you. And live lives that are pleasing to you because their lives have been changed by the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be unstoppable in this. Lord, we're easily stopped. We're easily distracted. We're easily discouraged. Help us. Show us where we need to change and grow And may we model a life and speak of a transformed life, showing the fruit of taking thoughts captive to the obedience of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.